chapter for Hannah Sultana is an internationally recognized interdisciplinary scholar of political ecology, water governance, post-colonial development, social and environmental justice, climate change, and feminism. Her research and scholar activism draw from her experiences of having lived and worked on three continents, as well as from her backgrounds in the natural sciences, social sciences, and policy experience. She is the author of several dozen publications and now works as a professor and research director at Syracuse University. Dr. Fahana Satana, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. Tell us how has water and geography inspired your work and who you are? In terms of my work, it's largely been drawn from a lot of life experiences, but then also my very interdisciplinary background and training. So it's increasingly um, evident globally that issues around water and climate and ecological breakdown are becoming important. And as a result, I think some of my educational background and journey was inspired by witnessing what was happening around me, but uh, also in terms of thinking about how to proceed with my work. So currently, I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and the Environment at Syracuse University, but I started off initially uh, training in the geosciences and actually in climate science and then switched into geography in graduate school because I felt that I liked the earth, but I like people on the earth more and I needed to learn and understand like social systems in addition to um, you know, geological or climatic or earth system and that, that's how I ended up pursuing a very interdisciplinary and then also an international and increasingly um, kind of critical social theory lens, as well as uh, combining a lot of scholar activism in the kind of work I do. When you think about water, it affects politics. It's not just ecology. It's also women's rights because who are the stewards of a water and so just go into the the very multi-faceted story of water and your work in Bangladesh. I grew up in Bangladesh and I grew up surrounded by water scarcity right like too much water too little water wrong time wrong place both flooding and drought as well as drinking water scarcity um, and it wasn't just about quantity and quality but it was availability timing um, you know, spatial connections and, and all of that. So a lot of the issues that I witnessed, in addition to like climate breakdown, ecological uh, conditions, deteriorating, rising poverty, but at the same time, ongoing development interventions, globalization. So a lot of my kind of geographical um, postgraduate or rather master's and PhD level training led me to pursue a lot of issues that I wanted to better understand. So I did work for the United Nations for some time, which is great practical policy experience, but I had all these questions in terms of thinking about how do we understand water governance or what are the water justice concerns or climate justice concerns? And I really wanted to explain things in more, more nuanced and critical ways and link issues across places and across scales. So from local to global, because a lot of the issues um, required that kind of integration of spatial and temporal analyses, but then also bringing in different epistemological insights in terms of uh, figuring out how do I understand what's going on better or what are the tools I need to have at my disposal to be able to do the kind of research I want to do. So yes, a lot of the issues were around the human right to water, but at the same time, issues around water scarcity and technology, uh, development-driven water infrastructure, but at the same time, looking at that intersectionality of gender and class and ethnicity in terms of who has water, who doesn't, who's laboring for water, how does it affect people's sense of themselves, local politics, household dynamics, but then also their sense of well-being. So I draw from my lived experience in South Asia to help inform my intellectual work, but I also try to do deep theoretical work that's complemented by the ethnographic field research, but then also an understanding of policy decisions that occur or not, and try to understand and explain more complex issues um, in more nuanced ways, because as more 
issues around the world are becoming more complex and people are recognizing it in that way. We need more people to be trained in interdisciplinary disciplines like geography, where we do train our students to help understand issues in more um, complex interdisciplinary ways. And I think this is where I found the most uh, meaningful and interesting um, work in terms of both research and teaching. You're talking about in Bangladesh and the region, transnational bodies of water. You're talking mm -hmm. of planning on a, a global level, or at least within that region. And it's something that we're all thinking about now, having just come out of COP26. And, and what can we all do when a lot of these decisions that are made by people that are distant from us are something that maybe in Bangladesh are handled on a day-to-day -day basis. It's also affecting uh you know the global north as well as the global south what can we do because there are projections that by 2050 36 percent of cities will experience water scarcity so the th uh, issue around water is that water is simultaneously a scalar issue right it's it's a local problem it's a global problem it's a place based but it's also um beyond place right it connects places but when you think about water it is such a fundamental basic need for all life survival, which is why we look for signs of life in terms of signs of water on other planets. But at the same time, we recognize that it is the one resource that we as human species um, cannot live without, neither can other living beings in terms of the fact that we need it for both biological reproduction, but then also day-to-day -day survival, right? So we cannot drink oil. We cannot find a substitutable resource to water. So what's happening is that a lot of the work I do may be placed in South Asia, but it has wider resonance. So I theorize, I talk about those kinds of methodological, epistemological and policy issues. So it has relevance and resonance with other places. So what can we learn from this? What does it also help us do in terms of thinking about this, like in a scholarly way, but also in pragmatic ways? So how we frame an issue always influences the solutions we come up with. So if we recognize water is simultaneously economic, social, ecological, spiritual, cultural, you know, all of these issues, we need to recognize that it influences very different aspects of our lives, whether it's um, household domestic labor, food production, childcare and care work, but then also industrial production or geopolitics, right? There's something very basic and fundamental about water and how we structure our cities, how we negotiate with, you know, over Transboundary River with a neighboring um, nation state. So there are a lot of ways water comes to inf influence our lives uh, beyond even the way we think about it. So one of the ways that I try to encourage my work or encourage thinking around this, uh, especially with my students, is to not only think about water as an economic issue or as a technical issue, right? Because how you frame the issue, again, will influence how you offer up solutions or how you limit or expand your capacity or capaciousness to think wider in more comprehensive and rich ways. So if we want to be more integrative and inclusive in planning for water scarce futures, we need to therefore be able to theorize and plan for these water justice, water injustice issues beyond economistic and technocratic solutions. So there is a place for all of that, but it's not only that. And it's the same that we're seeing currently in the climate justice conversations, especially having just come out of COP26, where there was a lot of conversation around climate justice. And one of the things that I always highlight is that climate justice is water justice, right? Climate is essentially about water. Again, too little too much, wrong place, wrong time, all of that. And then obviously there's a human intervention um, element to water in terms of how we control, manage, price water, how we view it, our kind of worldview around water. So when we want to think about potential futures or rather realistic futures where there's going to be uh, more concerns and crises around water, I think we really need to also recognize that a lot of it is man-made problems in terms of infrastructure, bad planning, policy, operation and management. So some of that you can alleviate or intervene in, 
Other issues are difficult or require much more substantial intervention that could be uh, renegotiating water treaties between nation states, right? Transboundary rivers, but it could also be transnational aquifers or um, other surface water bodies, uh, both groundwater and surface water bodies. But at the same time, thinking about the fact that a lot of it is beyond individual place-based control or negotiating capacity, because when you have disrupted climate, you do have disrupted hydrological systems, which means disrupted hydrosocial systems in terms of our capacity and our need to therefore reorganize, to adapt, and to be flexible. So that flexibility requires a certain amount of accountability, right? That constant loopback mechanism to, to think, to observe, to practice and then to rethink, right? It has to have this reinforcement where there's that um, responsiveness in terms of how do we think about solutions. So one of the things that came up with the, at the COP regarding climate justice is recognizing that, you know, some of the issues are, are about justice concerns. It's about voice. It's about who's at the table, who has a seat at the table, or rather what is the table? meaning what are the terms of the debate? You know, setting the terms of the debate, but how do we even know what the terms of the debate are, who is being included, who's being heeded? And part of that is therefore a decolonizing of knowledge and power structures, because it's centrally or fundamentally a justice issue beyond, you know, technology, beyond green capitalism. It is about that need to recognize that there are different ways people think about different components of nature, of the earth, of water systems, of their you know, atmosphere, but then also recognizing that there are uneven and unequal power relations and governance structures globally. So we need to also therefore think about uh, the valuation processes that exist. So if we want to have more equitable systems, we need to therefore have much more complex set of conversations, right? About whose knowledge are we counting? How are we valuing different voices, different expertise? What are the for instance, colonial legacies of power structures and globalization that are influencing what gets negotiated, how it's known, and what kind of planning or policies are pursued for any kind of systems change. What are some ways that people who are not in these positions of power, such as policymakers, can we raise awareness or what should we be doing to solve these issues and kind of bring environmental justice to the forefront? Uh, so a lot of this is about awareness and knowledge sharing. And it means not just knowledge sharing in the very narrow um, way that sometimes knowledge is shared in terms of just economic modeling or technological interventions, but a much more expansive, much more interdisciplinary way that way uh, water is thought about. Because water is life, but it, that means water is about power. Somebody who has the power to control water has the power to control life in that locality, control the politics. So when we think about those relationship between critical resource and the ways that different people may be largely dispossessed or pushed out or marginalized or rendered more impoverished over time because of the ways that they are being denied water or the way that it's out of their reach, maybe it's priced differently. And I think a lot of this is therefore that uh, education, that awareness building, but then at the same time, the need to recognize that because water is so central to the way we humans uh, structure our society, our economy, our politics, and our relationship to the natural world, that a lot of the inherited wisdoms do have longer uh, kind of colonial and imperial uh, modes of knowledge production that often have erased and do erase local indigenous knowledge and collective wisdom. So we need to therefore have more attention attention be paid to these issues that perhaps it is not just centralized technology or large-scale infrastructure-driven water control systems, but we need to be a bit more cautious and more mindful in the planning, um, in the execution and the monitoring, the updating in terms of who's at the table, what are the terms of the debate, what are we accounting for? So therefore, to even have those shifts happen, it means that people in positions of power have to be willing to give up some power or at least have that humility to learn, to recognize that some of the models with which we work in our world are not equitable, 
reproduce injustices, whether it's patriarchal, racial, or class-based, and therefore it's that accountability and responsiveness. Now, none of this is easy. If it was easy, we'd already be doing it, right? But nothing important and good was ever fully easy. But that does not mean we um, pull away from it and not do anything at all. It just requires a lot more concerted effort, and therefore it requires a lot more sustained pressure on different groups of people, different uh, people in positions of power. And as a result, we're seeing those kinds of local indigenous or youth activism and resistance movements, right? They're resisting dominant um, ideologies and dominant tropes of the way things have been done in order to, again, not only have a seat at the table, but to determine what the table is. And on that point of determining what the table is, you've spoken about that everyone should have the right to water. And also water has rights. There has been, you know, earth law and it's it's not been enacted everywhere. But, you know, the Te Awa Tupua, the river in New Zealand that was granted personhood as being indivisible and a living whole. You know, what are your thoughts about that? I know it's problematic when some of these cases then come to court, but I do believe it's a step in the right direction. So these are um, definitely contentious issues in terms of thinking about uh, who speaks for the river. So it's usually indigenous communities who have had longstanding and much more ecocentric ideologies and cosmologies in relating to the natural world around them, or that we are not, or rather, uh, the a lot of indigenous wisdom is that we are indivisible parts of nature, right? We are components of it. We have different relationships and kinships with um, different uh, natural parts of the environment or whether it's a river or a species, uh, different flora and fauna. And so when we think about um, earth law or these different uh, court cases, some of it is um, uh, really important de depending on the place and in other areas, uh, it, it's been much more contentious. And then we've also seen instances where it feels more performative, that it is done, but then how do you then plan around it, proceed? What is done next may not be wildly different, but it should. Otherwise, why do, would you have gone through with giving the a river rights, right? If you weren't going to change how you therefore did river management, for instance. So some of the times I think it's an important set of conversations to have to recognize that, you know, we need to think about multi-species justice. There are other species that are relying on the water, that it's not, should not just be an anthropocentric, you know, a very a, a human focused uh, issue around uh, that kind of belief of man's dominion over nature, right? Which is that very, very uh, anthropocentric view of uh, controlling a nature rather than being in a much more uh, biocentric or ecocentric balanced relationship, it, it, it can lead and has led to much more of an imbalance, right? So what we're seeing is that some of these uh, movements, for instance, out of Bolivia, the rights of Mother Earth or New Zealand, the rights of the Wanganui River. So one of the issues that I think a lot of people are grappling with is like, how does that sit with the planning? Where does that do to future policymaking? And I think those have yet to be worked out because there isn't necessarily a consensus on what do we do next. It's so interesting. Um, the, the water equity, it's so imbalanced. When I think the waste, and I'm sure you've encountered it, and areas of the world that struggle with water scarcity, they conserve, you know, they go out of their way. They might not have the infrastructure, but they really don't use a lot. And then I see in um, wealthier nations where you're having some drought, say in California, but that some of this is, you know, water, from my point of view, being mismanaged, like for almond crops or things like this that are so wasteful. So how can we improve our legislation around that, that we're really making the most of what we have and avoiding really avoidable conflict? So I think uh, a lot of the issues around uh, wastewater and water waste are real big concerns that are uh, getting more attention as they should. One of the issues is how do we therefore have more integration of uh, recycling of water so that we reduce water waste. So we have more wastewater treatment facilities, 
But at the same time, again, it goes back to that awareness raising until we have these conversations and greater knowledge sharing and recognize that there are different ways to think about it outside of a dominant or hegemonic way that, you know, we think about wastewater or um, water wastage. And then what are the different forms of intervention we can bring to bear? It could be household level, gray water recycling. It could be city level, um, you know, water treatment plants. It could also be um, nature-based solutions. Like you, if you have sewage going out into rivers, which has been a big debate in the UK in recent months, um, do you have different forms of treatment of that? Maybe there's a fish species right, that converts uh, raw sewage into something less harmful. So if you have mechanisms in place that allow for that mindful um, and cautious and responsive planning and monitoring and evaluating and updating, and that inclusive way of having more participatory democracy or better ways of including different types of knowledge and insights and different voices, you're able to have a much more robust system that is therefore, again, more responsive to different critical pressures or to various disruptions. Uh, so you're not entirely uh, dependent on one thing that then falls apart. So that's one way to think about it. The other one is agriculture, obviously, because agriculture is a, one of the largest users and abusers of water. So as you mentioned, the almond crop or oranges, or you're trying to grow different crops in a place that is not water rich and in a very dry or desert la landscape, but you're using artificial irrigation to grow crops that are uh, taking water out of the watershed, right, in them. So it becomes that virtual water that travels, it leaves the watershed not to return. And as a result, uh, it becomes an issue of governing agriculture. So when we think about that interconnection of water to all other levels of government structure and planning and governance, we need to therefore also think about agriculture pricing, subsidies, trade laws, right? And these ways water becomes an issue beyond the way we think we know water or H2O of water, right? It is not just that liquid substance that we're familiar with, it is much more than that. Yes. And so your research director uh, for the program for the advancement of research on conflict and collaboration there at Syracuse, what are your thoughts on the future of conflicts around water and current conflicts around uh, scarcity of resources? So I think one of the things that's really become evident with water is that there's actually more cooperation over water than conflict. Conflict, we need to recognize that can be um, sub-national state, and it often is. It can be between different cities and different regions. But conflict can also be understood in terms of human security, in terms of households, right? In terms of um, poorer communities or, for instance, in informal settlements or favelas, uh, shanty towns who do not have water provision, whereas wealthy neighbors in the same uh, urban space have a very easy easily available, potable, subsidized, therefore affordable amounts of reliable water daily. So therefore, when you think about these kinds of conflicts, we need to think about suffering, like who is suffering for water? And it may not overtly become a conflict the way people imagine armed conflict, but it can be a form of, you know, different class politics, different class conflicts over water in terms of uh, setting policy or pricing around water. So we need to therefore bring it down to different scales, whether it's, you know, a household level um, or, you know, community level, a city level, region nation state or you know inter and intra nation state so one of the things is that there's less conflict because people are willing to cooperate more whether that is to reduce further conflict but very few water wars have actually happened there's ways that people compromise over water but often it doesn't necessarily mean egalitarian compromise right there's can be different forms of appropriation different forms of silencing and violence that can happen. And we don't always hear about it, but so there are different violences that can happen, even if there isn't um, equivalent conflict where two parties are you know, uh, conflicting over water. But again, we need to therefore uh, kind of complexify what we mean by conflict 
over water and at what scale, because it can go from interpersonal, you know, in intra-household to intra-household and beyond. But as, as we were talking about earlier, in terms of transnational, transboundary waters, where there's more potential how people, or rather there's uh, more imagination around what conflict could be, right, between two different nation states, those are usually mediated by transboundary water treaties, or even in instances where there, it is not equivalent because one country has more regional hegemonic power than the other. So for instance, the US versus Mexico, or India versus Bangladesh, or Israel versus Palestine. You know, there are many, many cases like this, hundreds of cases around the world, or even within a nation state, it can be between different regions or different cities. So within the US, how the Colorado River is managed is highly conflictual, but that doesn't necessarily mean armed conflict. It just means that there are a lot of issues around suffering, a lot of different types of ways we can imagine violence, not again, armed violence, but in terms of dispossession, in terms of denial. So for instance, Native American American communities in the Southwest often are deprived of their water sources, or when it's a transboundary water, a shed like the Colorado, the state, you know, nation state of Mexico doesn't receive a whole lot because a lot of the water goes into agriculture in California or into cities like Las Vegas um, or San Diego and so on. So there are different levels and scales at which we can think about conflict, but then we also need to recognize that there's also cooperation about conflict and going back a little to the conversation about who has a seat at the table as we know the environmental field is predominantly white and male dominated you as a woman a woman of color what have you struggled with in the environmental field and aspects of your career what adversity has been the biggest challenge for you thank you for that question so one of the issues is that, yes, it is harder to be a woman of color in any field, uh, but it is harder to be a very outspoken vocal woman of color. And uh, that has been my reality uh, because I don't think silence is an option. Uh, too many centuries of my people were silenced in various ways. And if I have the privilege of education and voice, it is an absolute um, unending responsibility to therefore speak up and speak out and to share my knowledge, to share my expertise. So one of the biggest challenge has been when people question my credentials or my expertise because of my positionality and my identity as a woman of color or a foreign woman of color. Um, so that has been a struggle. Often it is uh, the assumptions about my knowledge or expertise, whether it is valid uh, and somebody else could say the same thing, a man or a white person may repeat what I've said and then it has more validity or legitimacy. So the legitimacy issue is not something only I deal with. Uh, it is you know, something that a lot of women of color in the climate field and the environment field uh, deal with, in the development field deal with. And also the other issue is in terms of how academia is structured, in terms of how knowledge is produced, circulated, validated, uh, celebrated. And, uh, you know, what is our valuation in terms of as women of color researchers, uh, teachers, in predominantly colonial models of knowledge production and in academia that wasn't necessarily made for us, uh, but it was made for other people who have more hegemony and voice and legitimacy. So it is um, exerting or rather having to exert uh, my um, credentials, my expertise to demonstrate sometimes repeatedly uh, the fact that I do have these degrees, I do have this pedigree, I do know what I'm talking about. I do spend an inordinate amount of time doing the research I do, and I do it very carefully and cautiously because I think ethical research is really important. But at the same time, as a public intellectual, I think it's really important to share whatever knowledge I do have in case it is helpful to anybody else, in case it helps spark some sort of seeking of knowledge on somebody else's journey, whether it helps them to have aha moments or realize something. And I'm told all the time, almost every day, that something I've said on Twitter or in some media piece or in some lecture or keynote uh, talk, that they uh, really found what I said to be very valuable and that it resonated or it inspired them to go read something further um, or to engage with my own work. So that is one of the ways of that reassertion of uh, you know, your expertise 
of um, being gracious in dealing with those kinds of pushbacks and the gaslighting and the questioning, but then there's also the trolling, um, especially in social media. If you're, um, you know, a public scholar like me or a scholar activist, you're out there and uh, you kind of become um, a beacon uh, for other people who want to come and troll you and attack and harass you. Whereas your message may not be very different. I may be saying something that as the same as my white male colleague across the ocean, but it is the fact that I said it and that somehow does not sit well with whoever the people are who feel very uh, discomfort that somebody who looks like me should have that level of expertise or voice or authority or audience. And I think uh, one of the things that I really believe in as a feminist scholar is that if I am uplifted, it is absolutely my job to help uplift others. And as a result, I, I try not to let that bother me, even if it is a challenge, it is constantly keeping at it, chipping away at it and not letting it let silence me because therefore that means I lose if I keep silent. There seems to be a lot of social injustice within the climate injustice and environmental injustice field. What would you say would be a productive way marginalized people can take up space and make space within these careers and in fields? I think one of the things is that there's that socialization and social conditioning for um, you know people of color or women of color to be socialized into uh, being more conciliatory or tone policing ourselves rather, you know, in, in trying to conform for that acceptance. And I don't think that will ever come easily. So one of the advice I have that I've come to realize and practice myself is you have to be your authentic self. You have to bring your whole authentic self to what you do um, at the same time, recognize, you know, and be mindful of the politics around you uh, and sometimes realize that you can't do it alone. It is never a singular individual journey, but it is a collective one. So you have to build on in solidarities. You have to collectivize. You have to, you know, find your kindred spirits and recognize that it is much more important to help support other people who can also support you back. Because when you are creating solidarities and collectives, you're therefore uplifting a lot of people's voices, but at the same time, you're also ensuring that you yourself have a voice and a space. So sometimes that can be um, oppositional tactics, right? Resisting, pushing back, being more galvanized, being more organized. And in other instances, it is just quiet power. It is that you know quiet strength that you keep doing what you do. You keep doing research. You keep publishing. Uh, you keep uh, you know giving talks or engaging with media, uh, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it is painful, because it is what lets you therefore um, do what you want to do and get ahead. Uh, and and it varies. It really does vary. But I think one of the ways that I found uh, to be meaningful is to make sure that I'm able to help elevate somebody else's voice, but at the same time recognize that um, I too have, um, you know, people who believe in me and value me, and it is about working collaboratively with them. Well, it's definitely inspiring for us. And we've seen a lot of, you know, promising and uplifting movements like Women for Climate. And I'm wondering, do you feel more women should be involved in these decisions and being, as you say, having a place at the table, uh, whether it's if we might even say more within our nature to be nurturing and, and not just focusing on the profit element, which that's a lot of people are also focusing on that, making profit of it. Um, I don't agree with the profit element. I mean, I think people need to do the profit however they feel is valid or important for their lives. I, I think uh, we can profit from building kinship structures. We can profit by expanding more justice-oriented work. Uh, but it, at the same time, that is also a form of care work, right? Even if it is intellectual care work, it is about mentoring. I spend an inordinate amount of time doing what is called invisible labor. A lot of women of color end up doing that kind of invisible labor of mentoring and nurturing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be seen as only a nurture work, right? It is intellectually stimulating. It can help elevate somebody else to do something better 
for themselves, but at the same time, it can also cultivate relationships and ties or collaborations that then become possible. And that therefore uplifts the research trajectory. It helps elevate different ways of knowing and being in the world. So I think one of the things that I do agree with is yes, it would be great to have more women involved in talking about climate and climate justice on feminist climate justice, which is uh, the piece that I uh, of mine that was in the works for many, many years, but finally got published last month on critical climate justice, where I bring in that kind of feminist insights to talk about what it means, um, not just in terms of who's doing the speaking, but then also what it is that we're talking about, right? So that epistemological framing. But since we're talking about the personal is the political, we I really do think that it would be great if more people did educate themselves, uh, created different collaborations or, um, you know, try to learn from others uh, at the same time, recognize that there are other people out there doing the work that you can get involved with and involved in, in different collectives and uh, different solidarity movements. So it shouldn't feel singular or individualistic um, or isolating. It should be something that is uplifting, but collectively, and that it is not an individual journey that you just arrive at, right? It is that continual work level of work, which means uh, you have to be mindful of your own energy levels, your own emotional labor in terms of what you put in and uh, recognize that what you get out of it, or you know, if we're going to use the word profit, what you get out of it is often way more than you put in because of that um, you know, sense of collective and that sense of validation, but then also your own journey, your own experiential journey in learning and uh, kind of blossoming as your own you know, scholar or activist or policymaker. Yes. And on this level of mentorship and education, you know, beyond the university level, what do you feel that we can do to transform our educational models to have, you know, climate education right at the core of that, that it can be truly interdisciplinary. So at a young age, this is something that all, even those who will not go to university, but who might have a vocational path can see themselves as in the future taking part in this green revolution? I think we do need to have um, a revamping, somewhat revamping of our educational systems, our curriculum that do integrate more um, issues around climate and water and environmental awareness, um, or earth democracy, if we want to call it that, you know, knowledge about the earth, knowledge about, um, you know, nature society relationships, geographical knowledge. These are the types of courses that we can build in uh, appropriately, depending on the curricula uh, from the K through 12 level, right? From, you know, kindergarten onwards. And they give students the option to learn more, to choose different pathways so that, you know, we don't teach our, our students to fetishize just getting degrees, um, you know, that turn over an economic profit or degrees that have only vocational and technical training, but allow for much more comprehensive curriculum from a much younger age. And I think some schools are getting better at this. They're, they're doing more and more. We're seeing that um, more probably in um, some countries better than others, you know, that are integrated into, for instance, the British uh, GCSE, like what is used to be the O-levels and the A-levels and the U US, it's the high school level curricular that is shifting to include more, but it's also going uh, further down, right? For like kindergarten up to, you know, teenage uh, years. And I think those kinds of issues ensure that a wider citizenry has access to that kind of education because more people are likely to get high school diplomas than they are to get a college degree. So if we make it, uh, if we normalize and integrate this kind of curricula from a young age, we then start to see generational shifts, which we've already seen. So the youth climate activists today didn't drop out of the sky. They're the beneficiaries of years of advocacy work and changing curricula and increasing awareness and having education available to people who are in their teens and twenties right now, right? So these are the, this is the outcome of much more concerted effort for curricular integration and change from before that. And uh, so we're, we're seeing these generational shifts in environmental education um, at a much younger age in schools curricula, but then also in college 
curricula. So I think it would be great where at the college or the university level, that if you do require a mandatory writing test, right, a mandatory writing course to prove writing uh, skills, therefore why not have a mandatory geography course where students have to learn about issues around climate and water and, and environmental racism and so on. So we, we can therefore help train more and more people faster through our education system, and that can bring about much greater shifts in mindsets, but then also policies that are made over time. Speaking about education, what inspired you to change your career path to teaching instead of continuing at the UN? So I'm a third generation teacher, and I think it's a calling that became more apparent to me, um, you know, as I progressed through my career. My grandfather was a teacher, my father was a teacher, and so when I was uh, finishing my PhD, I realized that this is what I wanted to do uh, to um, you know, continue in academia. So I worked for the UN uh, between my master's and my PhD years. And uh, I realized that I had a lot of questions and curiosities about the world that I could not answer within my position at the UN. Uh, it was a great learning experience and an opportunity to influence uh, things that I, I found were important at the time, but my interests as a researcher and as a scholar were better met in academia, which is also where therefore I could teach because pedagogy in my mind is an important part of being a scholar, right? A good scholar is able to teach material in more accessible and exciting ways. And through the teaching, you become a better scholar because, you know, students push back and ask questions. You're there for clarifying all the time on a weekly basis. And I was able to, within academia, realize that I can pursue different kinds of knowledge. I have that level of freedom to do work that I find meaningful, that impacts the world. And uh, I think by educating my students while doing you know, uh, rigorous research meant that I was able to reach a wider audience, not just through my students and people who are reading my work, but in terms of knowing that I'm having more tangible impacts over time. So students of mine from 10, 15 years ago are increasingly be getting into positions of some mid-level management or power, right? And it is those kinds of interventions mean that therefore there is the hope for change. Um, I'm able to reach wider audiences, um, you know, to use the term from a very old song, uh, bigger, better, faster, more. Uh, it, you know, it uh, much more people, much faster, much more swiftly, and with much more updated knowledge and research findings by being a teacher uh, than continuing in a policymaking world. So they both have their meaningful um, impacts, but this is the one that became more evident to me as a calling in life uh, later on. And in some ways, maybe I was genetically wired as a third generation teacher, I don't know. I, I definitely feel it. And you don't you feel it when you're around younger people, you feel that it's not the one wants to have an influence. It's like that, a legacy. But it can be quite difficult with the environmental path. You're aware of what's going on. So it just feels very nice to be also working with those who are committed. And so, yes, because perhaps I don't know what it's like working in a big organization like the UNDP, a completely different political setup. Right. Yeah, it's a very different beast uh, going from a large global institution to university setting. There are different bureaucracies, you know, there are different power hierarchies, but there's still bureaucracies and power hierarchies. You have different levels of freedom and control, um, but you have different intervention points and different ways you can impact people, for sure. And, you know, on some of these issues, uh, there's options, as you know, with the water management, and there's more, um, as you say, nature-based solutions where we, we're conserving and we're just allowing, helping nature do its thing. And then there's some geoengineering or there's desalination. And so on these choices of our, the way forward, I mean, what are your thoughts about those? I think we need to be cautious 
you know, and careful in any path that we pursue, um, especially with geoengineering, um, th that really does give me pause because those can be large technocratic interventions that may be in violation of local people's autonomy, their customary rights over, you know, centuries, it could violate indigenous worldviews. So there are different ways we need to therefore be cautious in proceeding. But at the same time, when we talk about conservation, we need to also not romanticize conservation that excludes people. So, you know, like national parks can be forms of erasure if people are pushed off the land that they've cultivated for a millennia. So it is about thinking in a much more um, uh, both ecocentric way, but at the same time recognizing that nature society dialectic or that human environment interaction to be mindful of that. And this is what I meant by having a flexible, responsive and inclusive mindset in um, the planning and then the follow through that happens, right? The before, the during, the after. So if we can't think about um, how we uh, imagine our futures. I really do believe we need to revolutionize how we think about water and climate or environmental justice. And we therefore need to decolonize mindsets in terms of which is the path forward. Because if we have this blind faith in any expertise, whether it's geoengineering, pricing, nature-based solutions, we can miss out on something else. So I think it's really important to recognize that there are different types of expertise, there are different types of experts, and we need to get out of that colonial model of knowledge production and implementation, where it's an external top-down driven planning and imposition, but to have much more um, capacity for bottom-up, um, more inclusive planning so that we can think about um, you know, more equity and justice instead of just controlling and dictating. Well, would you say a combination of both progressing forwards in technology and science and also in conservation and looking at the way indigenous people think of, about nature would be an effective way to continue the environmental justice fight? I think environmental justice is uh, predominantly a grassroots level, you know, movement, and we do need to therefore pay more attention to what's going on at the grassroots level and think less about the top down engineering technocratic solutions, because the latter is what we've been doing, but the former in terms of more grassroots um, inclusivity has been lacking historically. So I think we need to do a little bit better on that. But at the same time, we need to not romanticize the local, because the local can be very racialized and patriarchal and intersectional, you know, differentiated, but at the same time be exclusionary. So we need to be mindful. And again, like I said, this is not easy work, but it is important work. So it is about um, configuring out what is appropriate. And that does mean working um, with both the top down and the bottom up. But given that we've tried top down for a long time, I think uh, a little bit more integration of bottom up is called for. I can see how the affection that your students have for you in both looking up to you and just the way that you share your knowledge. So what do you see when you think about the future? I think when I think about the future is that uh, I know there's a lot of doom and gloom post COP26. You know, COP there's a lot of frustration, but there's also fear about like the rise of fascism, authoritarian governments around the world, um, and the ongoing various forms of racial harms and injustices. But at the same time, I believe in the power of critical hope. And what I mean by critical hope is that it is not vacuous hope without action, but it is hope that is derived from action and reflection. And it is about what we call praxis, which is not just practice, but it is practice that is theoretically informed and constantly has reflection and reflexivity built into it. So it is being that kind of cautious, being humble, having humility, and but remaining hopeful about the future, recognizing that yes, we collectively create knowledge, we, we share wisdom, um, and it is a generational transfer. So the younger people are benefiting from the efforts of older generations, but at the same time, we need to recognize that younger people have very different lived experiences. Their futures are going to look different than what some older people's um, experiences were growing up or growing old. So we do need to have that awareness raising and to build that collective power. So I think when I think about the future, 
my, my hope is that we're going to grow more compassion and empathy. And we foster that compassion and empathy um, and build those solidarities across borders and celebrate those collectivities rather than um, reinforce borders, uh, create cleavages and differences um, and you know, uh, feel a sense of gloom and frustration all the time. It is feel that, but at the same time, use and mobilize that frustration, that rage, that sadness to recognize all of us have different types of relative uh, privilege, to mobilize our privileges however we can, wherever we can, to help build those alliances, to to elevate others, because if we do not create a, a bottom you know, floor beneath which people cannot fall, we allow further degradation and further injustices. So we need to think about lifting up instead of just people at the top benefiting, instead of just looking up, we need to therefore look down and say, who can I help today? Um, where can I be more kind? Because being kind doesn't cost us anything. Um, and recognize that, you know, we all have limited resources and pools of energy. Uh, some days are better than others. And this is what I mean by that solidarity, because that is when somebody else helps lift you up so that you can help others going forward. Speaking of, you know, growing up, there are some memories you have. I imagine the, the places you visited, the experiences you had growing up that really remind you of the beauty and wonder of the natural world and reinvigorate your environmental mission. I would say um, deep in the Bengal Delta, which is where I'm from, where two of the largest rivers in the world form the, um, the Bengal Delta. So that's the Ganges River and the Brahmaputra River to recognize the intense biodiversity and to realize how people have managed to live despite constant floods and you know, climate injustices, that resiliency of effort and the human spirit, but at the same time, realizing that it is we live with other beings and creatures in this watery world called planet Earth, you know, where my feet would sink into the silty soil. And yet at the same time, that is the exact same soil that grounds me in the work I do to realize that there is beauty and wonder in the world, that there are people who matter and there are people who should matter more than they're currently mattering. And, and that gives me the fuel with which to proceed. In closing, as you reflect on water, uh, the environment, education, and the challenges we face, the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what teachers or life lessons were important to you and helped you make you the environmentalist you are today? And what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Related to what I just said, in terms of recognize the relative privileges and power you do have the opportunity to learn and to grow and to work with others. Um, so my hope is that people don't give up hope, that there it is a continual learning process and that people continue to realize that we will never know enough. And we are always students. We're students of the earth. We're students of each other. We need to therefore recognize that we exist in these ecosystems and human systems and they're very integrated and we need to do better and we can do better because the capacity of the human spirit is uh, quite expansive. And we owe it to future generations to do the best we can do while we can. Thank you, uh, Farhana Sultana, for telling the story of water politics, governance, climate justice, political ecology, and helping us understand water scarcity and how we can better manage this most valuable resource that gives life to everything. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Mariana Monahan Negro. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.